Well, as you're making your way back to your seat, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. It's also printed for you in your bulletin. I mistakenly gave you the wrong reference, but the text is correct. So we're in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. We are continuing our series through the Gospel of John, a series I've entitled, That You May Believe, again, taken from John's own purpose statement, which comes later in the Gospel in chapter 20. He tells us why he's writing. He's writing that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so here we are in John's Gospel in part four of our series, That You May Believe. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, a somewhat familiar text to many. Christ's first recorded miracle here in the Gospel of John. Again, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, water, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the gift of your word. We thank you for your scripture, which we can read freely, which we can hold in our hands. God, we pray that you would bless this reading of your word, that you would bless me, a sinful and imperfect man tasked with preaching through your scripture. Lord, we ask for your blessing as we consider what you'd have us to hear that you would encourage where that's required, where you would convict where that's required. But in all things, Lord, we pray that you would get the glory and that we would leave here again changed, that we would leave here not just having been hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. So bless as we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. I don't know about you, but I love free samples. Love them whether it's at Olive Garden and they let you sample the wine, fantastic, okay? They always have a wine they're, they're featuring for the month. They'll give you a little free sample, a little tidbit for you, okay? Fantastic. Publix, who doesn't love Publix, right? You get your deli meat cut and they give you that sample. Make sure it's thin enough for you, thick enough for you, okay? I love that free sample, love it. Have your grocery cart and eat a little piece of deli meat, okay? Sliced roast beef, turkey, fantastic, all right? Free samples. Costco, anybody shop at Costco? 
big bulk store, okay? Costco on the weekends can be like a festival. It's fantastic. All right, they have the tables out and the samples, and you can change shirts and put a hat on and go back and get more samples, all right? That's always a good time. Ice cream parlors, Killwinds or whatever, they give you that little wooden spoon to make sure you like the flavor before. I gotta be doubly sure I like it. Okay, so just keep them coming, all right? That little wooden spoon. Free samples are the best. They help you decide what you will choose. They help you decide where you're going. Last week, as we examined the end of chapter one in the Gospel of John, we heard Jesus say to Nathaniel, say to Nathaniel, and by extension to all of his followers, us included, that in following Jesus, we would see great things. In fact, we'd see greater things than what Nathaniel first saw from Jesus when Jesus knew him and told him information about himself. Nathaniel was amazed. And Christ said, you'll see greater things than these. In fact, you'll see uh, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You'll see heaven opened in the person of Christ Jesus. And we see that, of course, in his person itself. He is both God and man. Heaven and earth come together in the person of Jesus Christ. But we also see it in his mission. Heaven and earth come together as he is mending what is broken, as he is recreating the world. And so it's no accident then that right on the heels of that great promise which ended chapter 1, we encounter now in chapter 2 Christ's first miracle, Christ's first sign. And each of his miracles, each of his signs are samples, okay? If you were wondering what the heck I was talking about in the beginning, now you know, okay? Each of Christ's miracles, each of his signs are samples of this greater promise that he has made, that in his person and in his life and ministry, he is bringing together heaven and earth. Every miracle he performs, every sign he performs is a snapshot of what it looks like when those two things meet, when heaven and earth come together, when God and man are reunited, when everything sad comes untrue, when what is broken is set right or mended. These miracles are foretastes. They're appetizers, if you will. They're samples of what God has begun to do and what he will ultimately do in and through the gospel. And so it's interesting, and again, no accident, that Christ's first miracle takes place at all places in a wedding. A wedding. For if we're you know, thoughtful about it, weddings are places where heaven meets earth, in a sense, in a kind of a metaphorical way. It's this you know, somewhat supernatural, life-defining event where the love of a man and a woman come together and it's celebrated. And it's supposed to be that most joyous, again, life-defining moment. Further, recall that last week I mentioned that in John's Gospel, John is also representing the book of Genesis in many ways because the Gospel of John is the story of God recreating the world, setting it right in and through the person of Christ Jesus. And so if, it's, if you think about it, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told of the creation of the world. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, 
It hones in a little more specifically on man and woman, namely Adam and Eve. Likewise here, in John chapter 1, we were told of the recreation of the world through Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So again, in chapter 1 of John, we hear this creation language, and here now, interestingly enough, in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, we also meet, if you will, a man and a woman as Jesus' actions hone in here at a wedding. So there's this very cool, very neat kind of symbolism happening. Further, if you step back and look at the bigger picture of Scripture, what do we see? That Scripture begins with a wedding, Adam and Eve. And how does Scripture end? It ends with a wedding. The book of Revelation, the great wedding feast of the Lamb, where Jesus, the second Adam, Jesus, the more faithful Adam, Jesus, the rescuer of humanity, is reunited with the bride that he rescued, the church. He slayed the dragon, and he rescued his enslaved bride, the church. And so Scripture starts with a wedding. Scripture ends with a wedding. And so it's no accident then that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, performs his first miracle then at a wedding. He understands where humanity has come from. He understands where humanity through the gospel is going. And so he manifests his glory. He starts his ministry, if you will, in an event that encapsulates all of those things. A wedding. A wedding. That great and joyous social occasion where literally all human emotions come together. Do they not? There's great joy at weddings. Great joy, unspeakable joy. There's also tremendous stress at weddings, is there not? Details and budgets and planning. There's maybe even a little bit of sadness at weddings as, you know, the parents have to let go, you know, cut the apron strings, and, and, the, and the bride and groom uh, are supposed to leave and cleave to each other. There's even a little bit of sadness, right, as that page is turned in a relationship. All these emotions come together, joy and, and sadness and stress. I mean, think of the wardrobe at a wedding, right? Uh, bride's gown, the bridesmaid gowns. And my biggest worry at our wedding was I just didn't want to lose the tuxedo, okay? Keep the tuxedo. Keep everything, the cufflinks, you know, because i got to turn it in when I'm done, right? I don't want to get penalized, all right? That was very stressful. Keep that tuxedo. Don't lose anything, all right? Jerry Seinfeld, okay, Jerry, I have to go there, right? Jerry Seinfeld, my favorite theologian, all right? What does he say? He says that tuxedos must have been invented by a woman, okay? Why? Ah, all guys the same. Might as well dress them the same, right? At a wedding, we all look the same. But it's also a built-in safety mechanism. Why? Because if the groom bails, everybody just takes one step to the left, okay? And the wedding continues, all right? Seinfeld says he was once a best man in the wedding. Best man, isn't that a little much? If I'm the best man, why is she marrying him? Okay? You know, so weddings, all right? Weddings, they're just these amazing, amazing places. And so it's into this socially charged, symbolic occasion that Christ attends, and we learn so much. The first thing we learn, if you're following along in the scripture, is that it happens on the third day of the week. 
the third day of the recorded week there in John's gospel. That's no accident. That itself is charged with symbolism. It's undoubtedly intentionally highlighted by John to foreshadow what's to come in the ministry of Christ. Secondly, though, we see that it happens in Cana, in Galilee. Now, Galilee is a region where Christ already finds himself. We learned that in chapter 1. But if you notice, it's in Cana. And what's fascinating is that in chapter 1, Jesus met Nathanael and you know, converts him. You know, he, he, he realizes Jesus is the Christ. Later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 21, Nathanael will be mentioned again. And he's explicitly mentioned as Nathanael from Cana. Nathanael of Cana. And so the question is, what if this might even be Nathanael's wedding? Isn't that interesting to think about? Fascinating, right? Could this be Nathanael's own wedding? It's a city about eight or nine miles from Nazareth which explains why Christ's family is there, friends are there, okay? The villages come together to celebrate this wedding in Cana. Could it be that the one who doubted Jesus the moment he met him, and when Christ tells him, you'll see greater things, at his own wedding, Christ maybe performs this miracle. Wouldn't that be just like God? Wouldn't that be just like him to show such incredible grace? In either case, though, we see this great miracle that Jesus does And it tells us three things. Three things about his ministry. We see his compassion, we see his mission, and we see our response. We see Christ's compassion, if you're taking notes, we see his mission, and then we see our response. So let's just consider those real quick. The compassion of Jesus. You see, we're sometimes tempted, in my opinion, to over-spiritualize scripture, if you will. We're tempted to kind of underappreciate the actual lives that are being lived in these stories, the actual lives that are being affected. These are real people, okay? Real people at a real wedding in a, in a society where weddings are gigantic deals, like way bigger deals than they are in our day and age, in our culture, okay? week-long events where villages would get together and celebrate and feast and every possible relative is invited and every possible acquaintance and you are drawn to this big, massive celebration. This is where Christ finds himself. A real wedding in this time and place with real people who aren't just extras, okay? Aren't just actors, aren't just people, you know, kind of playing a part, you know, people who have been contracted, you know, to to look in front of the camera because Christ is trying to launch some PR campaign, trying to get, you know, get to elected office and brings in some actors to play a wedding to show how compassionate he is. No, these are real people in a real wedding in a culture, again, where hospitality is the highest of virtues, the highest of virtues. And so now they're faced with this mortifying, mortifying, reputation-crushing dilemma where the wedding, the feast, the thing they invited every possible person they could think of in all the surrounding villages has come and they've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. It's not a great way for them to start their marriage, to start their new life together, which is precisely why Mary 
okay, the mother of Jesus, like any good Jewish mother would have done, comes to Jesus. She kind of pinches him by the cheeks, right? She comes to Jesus and perhaps recalling the prophecy, you know, the angelic utterances that were given at his birth, perhaps recalling to mind amazing things that she had seen as he grew up under her watchful eye, perhaps hearing the things that have been said about him, he's the one, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior of Israel. Mary, like a good Jewish mother, comes to Jesus, and what does she basically say? She basically says, look, Jesus, before you go out saving the world, save this party. Save this party. Save this couple from embarrassment. And that's amazing. That's an amazing part here. And it's this cataclysmic, in my opinion, truth that we can often kind of gloss over. And the reason we often gloss over it is because we focus on details in the passage that we're not really meant to focus on. And so, for instance, you know, we, we focus on Jesus saying to his mother, woman, woman. I mean, isn't he being chauvinistic there? You know, isn't he, isn't he being rude? And let me put your mind at ease for a second. The answer is no, he's not. It's a rough translation, okay, of sort of the, the language of the day. And it's actually the same exact phrase that Christ will utter when he's on the cross. When he commands Mary into the care of John and says, woman, behold your son, okay? It's the same word he's uttering as he's caring for his mother in his moment of deepest agony, okay? And so it's a non-issue. Or we focus in this passage on alcohol and drinking and we want to talk about legal age and legal limit and you know can Christians have a beer at the ball game and things like that and it's just a non it's a non, it's not it's not an issue here okay you may have heard the joke before uh, what's the difference between two Presbyterians and two Baptists in a liquor store the Presbyterians will say hello to each other okay that went over like a lead balloon all right think about it when you get home all right but again, let me put your mind at ease here, okay? The, the Bible advocates against drunkenness, but not drinking, all right? Abuse doesn't negate proper use. That's true for all of God's gifts, okay? The Bible clearly speaks out against abusing wine, abusing alcohol, but it doesn't negate its proper use, okay? But again, in dwelling on these things, we miss this cataclysmic truth that the God of the universe the God who came to dwell with us in the person of Christ Jesus cares not just about our spiritual well-being, not just about where we're going after all of this, not just pie in the sky, heaven, religion, okay? He also cares about the regular sources of stress and anxiety in your life. He has great compassion for those things. Christ is concerned with saving this couple from embarrassment why? Because he cares. Because he loves. Because his compassion runs deep. That every concern, every anxiety, every curveball that life throws at us, we have a God in the person of Christ Jesus who cares. Who's with us in those moments. Who is ready to meet our pressing physical and social needs. And so that's instructive for us because that then is the posture of the church as well. 
We then, as his followers, are people who are primarily concerned with the main thing, which is the gospel, primarily concerned with spiritual things, but never in a posture where we turn a blind eye to the very pressing physical and social needs of our neighbors, of those we might come in contact with, because we see that very real, tangible, social and physical compassion from Christ Jesus himself. Is that instructs a lot of what we do. If you happen to be here yesterday to help, uh, we got the, the privilege of moving uh, the foster care closet. The foster care closet, okay? It's a ministry out of four kids of South Florida, okay? On the forefront of the foster care great crisis, that's what it is, here in South Florida, okay? And as you know, we gave them space uh, here in our church. And we moved from one room to another on our campus, Okay? But it was a great example of what the church does. We don't, we don't just care about spiritual things. The gospel that way, we also care about the gospel manifesting itself physically and socially, showing compassion to the least of these. Okay? And so yesterday was a great picture of that. Great celebratory picture. We get the privilege of partnering with ministries such as the foster care uh, ministry that we have here at our church. We see this because of Christ's actions here in this text. We see Christ's compassion. But secondly, we see the mission of Jesus, all right? The mission of Jesus. Notice, if Christ here, if he saves the newly married couple from the social embarrassment, that's what it is, like we talked about, the social, if he saves them from the social embarrassment of empty wine barrels, even more so, Christ came to save first Israel and then the world from the emptiness of do-it-yourself religion. To save us from the emptiness of do-it-yourself religion. It's no accident that the mechanism that Christ used to save the day at the wedding were the purification water basins that were symbolic, if you will, of Israel's relationship with God and how it had devolved into something it never was supposed to be. Okay? The Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel had taken God's revelation, his relationship, his law, and they began, as you know, to build a man-made fence around it. And they added their own nuances. They added their own customs and idiosyncratic instructions. So it became this rigid and this legalistic system where it became really more important about what you did, what you could offer to God, and not what God has done for us. And if you remember, that was actually summed up very neatly in another encounter <coughs> excuse me, that the Pharisees have with Jesus where they say to him, hey, we noticed, we noticed that John the Baptist's disciples washed their hands, ritual purification here, okay? And we wash our hands, ritual purification, but we noticed you don't and your disciples don't. And before you're like a germaphobe, okay, they're not talking about like not using the Purell dispensers that we have out there, okay? It wasn't a cleanliness thing of that type. The Pharisees were saying, you don't uphold these man-made customs that we, as the mighty, thank you very much, religious leaders of Israel, have put in place for you. What's the story with that? 
If you remember, Christ also gives them a, a, a message revolving around wine. Again, what does he say? He says, the reason I don't do that is because you can't take new wine, what he's about, his ministry, and put it into old wineskins. Okay? You can't shove it into there and make it work. In other words, what is he saying? The gospel, his ministry, shatters and goes beyond our preconceived categories of religion. It shatters those expectations of religion. Why? Because in the gospel, it revolves entirely around what God has done graciously for us, not, as religion tells us, what we can do for God. That's the main difference. The gospel tells us what God has graciously, undeservedly, amazingly done for us and goes against what religion says we are supposed to do for God. And so the Pharisees then were people, as you know, who took this great privilege of being God's children, of being God's people, and they insisted that they pay for it themselves. It's like somebody who wants to take you to dinner, someone who wants to take it out and play a round of golf, okay? And you go, no, thank you. I insist on paying for this myself. No, enjoy the blessing. Enjoy the grace. That's what Christ is getting at here because we're hardwired, as we know, to do the same. We're hardwired to do the same. And if we're not careful, we can present Christianity along those same lines. And yet here in his first miracle, don't miss that, his first miracle, he's kicking something off. He wants them to see this is the difference between what I've come to do and what religion has done before me, okay? Think of it this way. The gospel and religion, right? Religion is those water basins where every Tom, Dick, and Harry has taken their dirty hands and tried to wash them, all right? And Christ says the gospel is like new wine, 130 gallons of new wine, okay? What a picture. What a picture here that we're given. And he wants them to see that he is exploding their categories of how we're actually made clean before God. He wants to point out the, the ridiculousness of thinking that a little bit of water, a little bit of elbow grease, will wipe away our sins, will make us right before God. Christ's transformation of water into wine shows, no, 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 you need something much bigger than that, much better than that. You need the new wine of my grace, the new wine of the gospel. What a beautiful picture. So we see the compassion of Christ, the mission of Christ, and then finally, we see, well, then what is our response to Jesus? How do we respond to these things? And we see it very, very quickly. We see it in verse 5, in this very short phrase from Mary herself. His mother, look at verse 5, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. You see, that's the appropriate response. That's the appropriate response for all of us to the God whose compassion knows no limits. To the God whose compassion, as we know, would cause him to eventually effect another miracle. The miracle of veiling his deity 
in humanity, living a perfect life, dying the atoning death, and then on the third day, doing something else. On the third day, rising from the dead, turning the water of our sin, the water of our imperfection, into the wine of his forgiveness, into the wine of his imputed righteousness. You see, when we consider what God has done for us in that regard, that he loved us so much that he would spare no expense but give himself up for us freely, that it then produces in our hearts a desire, a desire to follow after him, a desire to give him every part of our life and hold nothing back, a desire, in other words, to use the very words of Mary, to do whatever he tells you, to trust him in the hard places, to trust him in the trying times, to trust him in whatever curveball life throws at you, knowing that he is the Lord over those things. He is the Lord with you. He is Emmanuel in the hardships. But thankfully, he's also the Lord of the feast, the Lord of that great party. But on the other side, in heaven, we're seated next to him, next to the Lamb, in the Father's very presence, and there's joy, and there's grace, and there's favor forevermore. Every tear is wiped away. There's no more sadness. But with Christ and him alone forever. He is that God, God of compassion, a God of great mission, and a God who we respond to by giving him every part of us and leaving nothing back. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for giving us so freely your riches, the riches of your love, the riches of your compassion, the riches of your imputed righteousness. Father, thank you for, in the person of Jesus Christ, doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. Thank you that we also have seen in our lives this amazing and radical water-to-wine transformation. Being dead and being made alive. Being sinners and giving great pardon. Being enemies of God and being made into your children. Heirs who will be seated one day next to your very Son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you, Lord, and we ask your continual blessing to be upon us. Continue to encourage us in this life. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.